Hi, this is Wild and Free, a Battleborn podcast. I'm your host, Allison Yanez, and uh, today with me as always is my co-host, Jacob Murdoch. How are you, Jacob? Allison, I'm doing great. It is, uh, it's a beautiful, pretty much now summer, summer day here in Las Vegas. Uh, it's, it was hot. I was out earlier getting groceries. It's very warm. How's that in Indianapolis? It's good. You know, it's good. We went for a walk to get some food. I had some, um, mac and cheese with bacon, broccoli, jalapenos, and toasted chips on it. So it kind of felt like a brick. So I'm digesting. Mm. Um, So bear with me. I'm catching up. I'm catching up. But we're really excited about today's uh, guest. We have on today David Figler, a private defense attorney, former judge, and columnist for the Nevada Independent. Welcome, David. Hi, guys. How are you? Great to have you have you on. Um, probably many of our listeners are familiar with you through your work on Nevada Independent or your larger than life Twitter personality as well. So, yes, my incessant Twitter obsession. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, with with the shutdown, I think we've all probably had uh, those of us, you know, like the three of us who spend enough time online have probably gone overboard and spent even too much time online where I find myself trolling people at like three o'clock in the morning, which is probably not the best, but. Yeah. I I'm in the midst of writing my next column for the Nevada independent and the very, the opening line, if it stays um, through myself and, or the staff edits is I blame Twitter for this exhaustion. (laughs) (laughs) Seems about right. Yeah. there, there seems to be a lot of things that keep you and us up at night, David. So let's just dive into it. We decided to have you on to talk about um, two groups of especially vulnerable people in our community, uh, two groups that often um, they're not contemplated when we talk about public policy. You've written expansively about them in the Nevada Independent. So um, just before we, we went live, we were talking about, it's been over two months since Governor Sisolak announced that the um, businesses were being closed, et cetera. I wanted to hear about um, those people, that, folks that are incarcerated and in jails. Um, we've heard about transmissions of COVID-19. Um, can you give us a brief overview of the issues regarding incarceration and the pandemic? Sure. So with regard to state action, um, there has been no official part of any executive order that touches upon um, the prison system, which is uh, administered by the Nevada Department of Corrections. Now, the De- Nevada Department of Corrections has about 12 institutions through the state uh, correctional facilities and probably another eight or so conservation camps uh, where incarcerated people are detained uh, for anywhere from uh, a year to the rest of their lives. Um, And then that also includes the small population, um, actually large per capita uh, in the country for for Nevada, but uh, relatively smaller, maybe a hundred or so folks that are on death row, which is located in the facility in Ely, Nevada. Mm-hmm. So um, there have been no, no official directives, no directives um, with regard to um, some of the things that we're seeing everywhere else, social distancing or um, depopulation or, or early release or anything that would specifically come from the governor to um, 
those individuals it has not been forthcoming yet. Um, we could talk, I'm sure we're going to talk about what has been done um, yeah. because it's not zero, but it just has been zero with regard to the same level of emergency um, directives or uh, emergency responses to uh, the rest of Nevada. Then there's also the various jail systems. So just very quickly, the difference between jail and prison. Um, jails are typically administered by municipalities or county entities throughout the state. There's lots and lots of jails all over the place. There's also a federal jail um, that exists in Nye County, uh, right outside of Pahrump. Um, so that's something separate, but, um, Henderson city has its own facility. Las Vegas city has its own facility down the line. Clark County has a detention center. They're administered by different entities. The Clark County detention center, for example, is administered by the Las Vegas metropolitan police department. Uh, the city of Las Vegas, uh, jail is, uh, regulated by the, um, city of Las Vegas department of public safety. So people are arrested for various offenses. It could be misdemeanors or felonies while they await um, their litigation trial or conviction, et cetera. They wait in a jail. Now there are some people who commit misdemeanors, which are the smaller offenses and they could be sentenced to a time of incarceration. And that typically will occur also in the jail. Um, also, the jails are being sort of outsourced to uh, be de facto immigration hold centers as well. Mm -hmm. So people with immigration holds are being housed um, specifically in the Henderson City Jail. That's where the largest part of that population is. That's where ICE hold uh, individuals are. So um, prison is only for people who have been sentenced to a year or more after being convicted of a felony. So theoretically, no one is solely in custody for a misdemeanor in any of the various prisons. Um, we also have one prison uh, of the uh, list that I have of, of um, correction facilities that's for women only. There are no co-ed prisons. So the one women's prison is uh, Florence McClure, and that's down in, in the Las Vegas area. So there's jails and then there's prisons. And so... Um, where we are right now is that every jail is kind of approaching their jail separately. And there have been uh, cases of COVID-19 identified in incarcerated people in jails all over the state. Uh, and those have been um, dealt with in very different ways. We just don't even have enough time to talk about the different ways. The big one was the Clark County Detention Center. Um, they petitioned as the Nevada law allows, they petition the court to say, we need to reduce the population. Can you give us essentially cover or a mandate to identify individuals in the Clark County Jail who we can release right now? Uh, Metro also instituted a um, guideline policy. It's not a mandate, mm -hmm. but from all accounts, it's mostly being followed is that they are not arresting people in county jurisdiction for misdemeanors right now. They're just giving them citations, mm -hmm. except for mandatory arrest situations, which are under Nevada law, DUIs, and domestic violence cases. Um, there is some degree of discretion. Um, there's a lot of nuance to that. Some people are still being arrested for different reasons, but generally speaking, Metro has not been 
putting people new into the Clark County Detention Center on small misdemeanor charges unless they are the DVs or the, the DUIs. So that's kind of the approach of the jails. The prison is co something completely different, and that's the one that I've been um, losing my Twitter brain on. And that is we are seeing from the public health um, dashboard uh, an increase of individuals who either work at or are engaged with the prisons testing positive for COVID-19. So I, I can't remember what the last number was. It was, um, they're definitely over, I think they're in the twenties now, um, somewhere around there. I know it's more than 16 and it's probably less than 30, uh, individuals who work in the prisons with the incarcerated, you know, population of incarcerated people, um, and in their housing units. And so those individuals have tested positive and they've been required to quarantine. Um, one of those individuals who was a correction officer um, recovered from COVID-19 and he was allowed to return back to work. Oh. So that sort of triggered the question of what's going on with the population of people who are incarcerated. Right. And that number hovers somewhere around uh, somewhere between 12 and 13,000 individuals uh, in the state of Nevada wow. are um, incarcerated and uh, in under the control of the Nevada Department of Corrections for the most part. And uh, so a lot of people similarly interested in this um, from different quarters, ACLU, um, PLAN, uh, other prisoner advocate groups have all been really trying to dig into information, but mm -hmm. prisons are notoriously and by design non-transparent institutions. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I would love to talk about some of those reasons because they're really endemic to the way that the system is set up. Right. Um, and, and so ultimately there have been a lot of calls to the governor to say something like, what are you gonna do about this population who are obviously very vulnerable? Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people in prisons who are already sick um, who do suffer from many, many health disorders. The rate of uh, hepatitis C in the Nevada prison system, which is the subject of federal litigation and just got certified this year as a class action lawsuit, mm -hmm. hovers somewhere between 20 and 30% of the population have hepatitis C and because of budgetary constraints are not getting the medicine that can cure them of it. Right. And so they are languishing under the um, symptoms and the consequences of hepatitis C without access because they're in the prison system to uh, life-saving drugs. Right. And so that population during a pandemic is obviously of great concern as well uh, as people who go in with respiratory problems, people who are older, um, et cetera. And so there have been all these calls what are you gonna do? What are you doing? Um, why aren't you removing the most vulnerable people who you can safely remove, et cetera? And that has really hit a brick wall. There've been some nuances and you know we could go through what has been done, what hasn't been done, but ultimately um, I'll circle back and then turn it over to you guys. The, the governor has not issued a single decree or made a single statement regarding the um, idea that there could be a pandemic inside the walls of any one of these facilities right now, and we don't know it. And experts are saying it's highly likely. 
Um, and even if they manage to stave it off for now, when it does hit, which a lot of people do think is inevitable, um, it is not only going to be devastating to that community because everybody is packed so closely together. They cannot exhibit social distancing. They cannot be given masks according to the, um, to the prison officials because of security concerns. Um, once that happens, not only is that population going to be like the worst cruise ship you could even think of, but because of the various protocols and the necessity for hospitalization and what happens, that is going to trickle into all the rural communities where those prisons are located, and it is going to have a devastating secondary impact on the state of Nevada if it happens. And right now, that seems to be where everybody is, is that um, they're praying that it doesn't. So We're, our policy right now is prayer. Well, that's, that's America for us, right? Thoughts and prayers on that one. So just to clarify then, David, you're talking about this trickle into rural communities where the uh, correctional centers are located. They're not, they're currently not equipped then to, to handle such a, such a big outbreak then is what you're saying. Well, it, right. If it's a big outbreak, look, there's protocols, right? So if you just are exhibiting some of the symptoms of uh, COVID, obviously um, they have the means to isolate a lot of people. Uh, and that that is what's happening right now from what we're understanding um, the terminology that we're hearing from our clients who are incarcerated now is that they're being red tagged okay so when somebody um, red tagged not necessarily tested um, and, and that's a really important distinction so um, they're isolating people left and right who may be uh, uh, impacted or effect, uh, afflicted with with COVID-19 right now the, the, the answer to your question, Allison, is if there is a serious outbreak in any one of those communities, in, in any one of those facilities, um, protocol would require that whoever needs to be hospitalized because of it. And we understand that, you know, there's not respirators. There's not a fully functioning hospital. There's an infirmary and they can only handle so much. So if they have to take them to the closest hospital, which happens all the time, I mean, with a population of, you know, almost 13,000, you're going to get people who need to go to the hospital on, on a regular basis. Right. So there's a protocol in place. You have to have two guards, you're transported uh, in a vehicle, you know, et cetera. So uh, there's a big difference though, in somebody who has a heart attack or a stroke who needs to go to a hospital facility in their transport protocol versus dozens or maybe hundreds of people um, with a highly contagious disease who are being transported into small local facilities. So mm -hmm. not only is there a concern that, you know, every step of the way people are being exposed, people in the community are being exposed, whether it be uh, transportation officers or medical personnel uh, or any of the individuals who facilitate that transport, but that once they get into those hospital facilities, you know, they're taking up beds like any other patient, any other Nevadan, right. uh, except, you know, in their case, they have to have two guards standing there as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you magnify that by tens or hundreds, um, now you've got entire community systems around the hospital facilities that are vulnerable um, because of the influx because it would all happen at once. That's, right. that's the crazy thing, is that it wouldn't be a slow royal at that point. I mean, they're trying to, again, hold it off, and they've instituted a lot of protocols to try to keep the prisons uh, cleaner, to keep them uh, less 
likely to allow transmission, but you know, A, we don't know a whole lot about the transmission. Mm -hmm. uh, we know a, a little and we're doing a lot that we can to, to prevent uh, the spread, but by the same token, you know, they're closed circuit institutions. And we know for a fact that 19 people who have tested positive have had interactions with, you know, quite a few inmates. Mm -hmm. So that's where we're at. Um, and so the governor has taken some measures that most of us feel are wildly inadequate to um, come up with a solution. Uh, so pre-solution efforts have been um, criticized uh, and, and we're just kind of literally holding our breath. So I'm interested. I want to go back to the, the the issue of transparency. I mean, can we? Well, first off, you know, I would like you to talk a little bit about the issues with transparency in prisons. And can I mean, can we, as you know, citizens of Nevada, trust that there isn't you know there isn't already a bigger issue than what we know about? I mean, would that information even get to us? So. I think that the short answer to your second question is no, we don't know. We, okay. we just don't know. We're hearing things from our clients that contradict what prison officials are saying. Um, that happens sometimes. It, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the prison officials are not being candid, but they do choose their words very carefully, which gives us pause as to whether the information that's coming out is uh, intentionally vague or is being worded in ways to avoid giving you bad information, right? Mm -hmm. So we're hearing from people in all the facilities that this red tagging is amping up, um, that the protocol that guards have to wear PPE is um, not being fully enforced, um, that the access to cleaning supplies and hand sanitizer is sporadic, um, and that a lot of people are in a lot of ways fearful of even reporting symptoms because they're um, tagged and they lose privileges and, you know, it's already rough being in prison. They don't want to put themselves in a worse position, especially if, you know, maybe they don't have it. And there is no widespread testing that's happening, although testing is happening a little bit more. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that. But in answer to your first question, um, yeah. So there was a panel uh, that was assigned to possibly make some recommendations to um, the governor about what to do with the inmate population. Uh, it was a different panel that was already in place that was uh, asked if they might be able to help. They did not have the time, uh, the information and quite frankly, the composition of that board, the Nevada Commission on Sentencing, mm -hmm. uh, is a highly partisan, and I don't mean that by political party, but by position and bias uh, of individuals who talk about sentencing reforms. Mm -hmm. um, that has very little to do with the medical urgency of a pandemic. Right. And so there are some judicial representatives on that panel. Um, there is a judge from up north. Uh, who said something so salient as to why there is no answer. And I think it's going to answer your first question, Jacob. Okay. And that is, he said, I don't want the governor or anyone else messing with the sentences that I have thoughtfully issued for the felons that I have sent to prison. Jesus. And I just want to let that set in for a second. He's literally saying, look, 
our system depends on prison not being a horrible place. So our system works if you trust that I send only the people who deserve to be in prison to prison and let that play out its course. And I guess my first question to that judge would be, so if the prison was on fire, which it is right now with an invisible set of flames, mm -hmm. you would be comfortable sending him there because your 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 defendant there because that's justice to you. Mm -hmm. See, that's the problem with transparency in the prison because if any of us saw what the reality of the day-to-day -day in prison was, a institution that would allow a, a transmission rate of hepatitis C to reach 25 to 30% of the population right. where uh, prisoner uh, deaths by hand of, of other inmates or because of collusion with guards or mistreatment by guards or impregnation by guards um, occurs regularly uh, and results in all these different lawsuits that are sealed. Um, I mean, Jesus. this is the prison system is broken, right? But the judges aren't ready. They can't acknowledge that because they can't send people into burning buildings, right? Mm -hmm. That that would be a violation of every standard of justice that we all as citizens accept. That would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment. That would be a violation of human decency and probably international conduct codes. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't send somebody who wrote a bad check into a death chamber, right? right? So the institution <laughs> relies on us not knowing how bad it is or how horrible it can be or when there's a pandemic even, that there's a pandemic even. Right. So that that's kind of where we're all coming from. Um, so there's a resistance to even try to identify individuals in the facilities right now who might be most vulnerable to COVID-19, who might have been exposed to a person who had it, who might have respiratory problems, who might be a nonviolent offender. Uh, and there's a lot of the language of this integrity of system of scare uh, tactic of we can't release bad people into the community willy-nilly you know um, they'll just reoffend again they'll just be in a worse spot there's even a thread right now from the governor uh, mm -hmm. and others that they're better off in the prisons than they would be to be restored any degree of liberty and so that's kind of the conversation. And when I said that there's so many threads to that, that it's really hard to, you know, follow one without kind of going off the rails, that's where we're at right now. So the latest word was that, well, first of all, they were, they, they had only tested out of 12,000 plus, you know, somewhere between 12 and 13,000 people. They'd only tested um, 44 inmates for COVID-19, so less than a percentage mm -hmm. uh, were even tested. And then when you, and, and, but that's changing every day. And I'll, I'll, there's, there's one thing that just happened a couple days ago that, that might tilt that up a little bit, but not much. Um, so I asked the prison, like if they could give me a little more dig, you know, deeper dig into that, the 44 who were tested. And I'm like, well, how many of the 44 who were tested were tested because they were symptomatic 
versus just the potential exposure or whatever. And then they start breaking down the numbers and it just got lower and lower and lower. Um, and actually I have of, of that first 44 who were tested, um, I actually do have the breakdown of how many even showed symptoms. And I think it was something like 16. So wow. uh, of the, let's just say 12,000 people who are in there, uh, only 16 who had actually shown any symptoms were even tested. And all of them came back um, negative for COVID-19. So if somebody had a dry cough or something like that, um, they, they came back negative. And I confirmed that with the Nevada State Epistemology Board or whatever. Um, I'm, I always say that word wrong, so I'm just hoping I said it right and just gloss over it. Um, so uh, David, oh, yeah. If I could uh, just for a second, so within this system that you've that you've described, that absolutely robs human humans of their dignity. Um, can you tell us what measures besides this meager amount of testing are being implemented, and what it is that you and other advocates are asking for the state? Sure. The safety sure. And and Allison, that's actually the part where I, I'm going to commend the Nevada Department of Corrections, they, they actually did that part of this ostensibly correct. So they moved early to put protocols in place um, way faster than a lot of other prisons around the country. And I think they've just been so rocked from all these other medical scandals over the last two or three decades um, that they either knew they needed to do this or you know, maybe the culture has changed enough where they realized that they had to get in front of this, otherwise they were going to be behind it, right? Mm -hmm. So they instituted immediate protocols. Um, they cut off visitation. Now, some of these have some secondary impacts that are really hard, and a lot of advocates have been talking about how to deal with the impacts of the protocols. So in other words, they cut off visitation from the outside world. Well, that was a smart move um, because you're bringing less, less, possibility of transmission into the facilities because a lot of these facilities allowed person-to-person uh, -person contact, you know, on some level uh, across the table from each other or even a hug, you know, that sort of thing with family members. So that was great. Um, of course, the obvious downside is that now in a place that's already horrible, you're isolating people from, you know, yeah. their support system and things that keep them human. Um, and so there was a call to you know, allow video conferencing or, you know, because they charge for the phone calls to uh, alleviate the cost of that. And there was some movement on that. So they, they, they're trying to do the right things on that. Uh, instituting PPEs uh, among staff, doing screenings of vendors who come in, um, ordering more and more and more cleaning supplies uh, for uh, use and, and, and having protocols of, uh, hygiene regiment within there. Um, they did have a protocol to issue hand sanitizer to everyone, but out of the 12,000 plus uh, bottles of hand sanitizer that issue, because some of them contain alcohol, I guess, right, um, yeah. a couple a couple of inmates, like maybe less than a dozen, maybe less than 10, maybe less than five, were caught trying to uh, inebriate off of the uh, hand sanitizer. And so they stopped it for all 12,000. So that's amazing. Um, so, you know, that, that's how prison works, right. right? We gave them a chance and they screwed it up themselves. I mean, that was kind of the response 
when they got called out for stopping that part of the program. Mm -hmm. so, so that is what they are doing. And from what we're gathering unofficially, uh, anyone who reports any of the major symptoms seems to be placed away from other um, people who are incarcerated. So while, again, the good news is that they're isolating people um, who might be potential sources of transmission of the, of the disease, they're also putting people who already are lacking human conduct, you know, contact and who are already in a horrible place in an isolation situation, which everyone agrees is not good either. And it's for, you know, however long it takes to clear them and then they're reincorporated into. So for every plus, you know, there's a, there's a bit of a minus and that's unavoidable. Um, but they have been kind of ahead of it in that regard, not the testing regard, but they have been ahead of it, at least in the, um, uh, the protocols, right? So those were put in place. So unfortunately, they are relying very heavily in, in, in convincing the governor that no action needs to be done on the combination of putting in these early protocols and the fact that there have been no positive tests that have come back. But again, whenever someone says no positive tests, I you know almost scream out loud, asterisk, we haven't really tested anyone. Right. So the fact that there's no positive, I get that narrative. It's an important narrative. Yes, we haven't had anyone yet test positive, but if we were to test, let's say every inmate, I wonder if that narrative could be sustained. And it, it probably couldn't, not from what we're hearing from the inmates themselves uh, when they do have a chance to talk to us. So that's where we're at with the prison system. Um, the yeah. sentencing commission, ultimately met twice for 13 hours. Um, they came up with no recommendations uh, other than they identified six potential individuals, six, the number six out of 12,000 that could be eligible for parole three months earlier than regular, wow. uh -huh. but not guaranteed. So in other words, their recommendation to the governor was there was a new law passed in 2019 by the Nevada legislature that's not set to go into effect for a couple of months. Let's put that into effect now. There are six people who qualify under that new law. They could go into the parole system and the parole board can consider whether or not they should be given a geriatric release because they're over the age of 75 and meet other criteria. Wow. So, um, Jesus. For 65. The United States just continues to redefine what cruel and unusual punishment <laughs> looks like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the to to common sense, and apparently that hasn't entered in the conversation yet. It was all about, but if we release people, won't they just um, be so impoverished that they're going to commit new crimes, or because there's a housing crisis, they'll have nowhere to live? So let's keep them safe in this. Petri dish. Hello. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the conversation. And then, you know, we go into criminal justice reform, uh, which we shouldn't be mixing and matching with pandemic response, right. but we are. And then, you know, we're also talking about whose responsibility it is. You know, if people lack resources, uh, which led them to, you know, a transgression against law, which has landed them because of a wise judge into this prison system, um, of course it makes no sense to expect that opening up the prison door uh, will allow them to, you know, immediately because of this experience be functioning members of society again. I get that, but 
the state needs to take that responsibility too. And if there is no housing, and that's the reason why they're keeping people who, mind you, uh, over 300 of that 12,000 have already done all of their time from those great judges and have been paroled and ready to go out, but are still stuck in the prison system because they don't have a place to live, um, which is apparently a requirement. Um, and instead of finding them a place to live or paying for a place for them to live, we continue to pay for them to live in the place that is potentially horrible uh, for them under these new pandemic um, conditions. Right. And so, you know, again, it all comes down to, but do we really need to do anything because there's zero positive so far? Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have these protocols in place. So why is everyone hassling us to look and find vulnerable people and thin out the population right now? Because ultimately, they're all bad people. And ultimately, there's no good place to put them outside these walls. Right. We're, that's the mindset. We're, that's the mindset. And that's why the governor, in my opinion, has not issued a proclamation. And that is why no task force has been assembled involving um, neutral prison experts and medical health professionals and infectious disease professionals um, who and and uh, human rights advocates um, who should all be meeting with the governor right now to come up with a concrete plan to reduce like they did over at the Clark County Detention Center, mm -hmm. reduce the prison population, understanding that a lot of those people have been all those people have been convicted of felonies. Um, but there comes a time when you realize the house is on fire and some people don't belong there, especially if they're vulnerable to smoke. Right. So how, how can we get, you know, get, get involved in this? How would you recommend, you know, just your everyday, you know, Nevadan who is sickened by this idea? What is it that we can do? Well, I, I mean, there's short term and there's long term, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I've advocated that long term we really need to have this conversation about why there's so much secrecy in the prison. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, why would sunshine not be a good thing? And I think that maybe sunshine stops the pipeline. Nevada has one of the highest um, per capita populations of inmates, one of the highest per capita death rows in the country. And uh, it, it's just an overused flawed system that, you know, we're trying to fix from the back end and not really look at the front end and we're doing it in the dark. And right. so I think that with all these facilities, we don't need combative prison directors, which our new director who just started in December has exhibited great degrees of combativeness in, in being inquired about certain things. Um, we, we have a system where, you know, violence is, um, very commonplace inside these facilities where you house violent and nonviolent people together, um, where you have first timers, where you have vulnerable older populations mixed in with younger populations. I mean, it's just the whole concept is uh, a long overdue for transparency. Transparency would have gotten us to a different place than a class action lawsuit in federal court for hepatitis C sufferers, you know, uh, and, and so um, to me, that call for maybe a citizen review 
of the prisons and not necessarily a legislative one because there is some legislative controls because of course they control the money as well. Right. Um, but I, I think it would be much more important um, for that. I think that we need to bolster uh, those organizations for prisoners' rights that do exist in our state. They aren't as um, organized as they are in other places uh, around the country, but I think that those uh, especially those nonprofits that are out there um, or agencies or entities that are out there to advocate for the rights of individuals who are incarcerated um, should be bolstered. Um, so citizen review, um, bolstering advocacy groups, um, and really calling upon the governor to acknowledge um, that there are ways to um, thin out the population of incarcerated without offending every judge. You know, mm -hmm. um, the pardons board is supposed to be one of those things. They only meet sporadically throughout the year. They have limited numbers of people who they qualify for consideration. I think calls need to be made to all the district attorney's offices throughout all the county district attorney's offices throughout the state on a repeated basis to review cases um, to determine whether or not there was perhaps um, too harsh uh, a, a degree of, of punishment for certain offenses, especially drug offenses, given, um, you know, the legalization of marijuana. There are still people serving time for uh, marijuana offenses in prison. Right. Uh, there are ways to do this that other states have done. We have not. I think our legislators need to look at this as well uh, to see what they can do. I, I, you know, we have a very unique system of clemency uh, in the state of Nevada compared to other states, it's in our constitution that the governor does not have the power of clemency. And so perhaps um, a campaign to look at giving that power uh, a clemency board or, or back to the, to the lead executive uh, to have an ability to streamline clemency more so than the sporadic meeting of the pardons board, um, maybe to have uh, a more systemic criteria for the pardons board of who would be eligible like they do with parole. Uh, I think even parole boards need to be looked at anew. I, the whole system has so many components to it that have just been operating the way that they have forever, forever. Mm -hmm. And the end result is where we are right now. That, you know, when a pandemic hits, it's gonna be devastating. But even when it's not, it's devastating. Right. And there really is no call to action to take a look at where we can improve um, the use of prison, if we even maintain it, uh, or, or how we can um, reacclimate people into the community before the very end of their sentences, um, even maybe before they go into prison. Maybe we don't need prison as much as we use it as a default for so many things, especially violations of parole and probation. Um, that occur on a regular basis. And I know the legislature, that was actually one of the criminal justice victories that they had um, in the last legislative session in Nevada was to limit some of the um, uh, revocation of people who are on parole mm -hmm. uh, for taking away some of the minor violations for reincarceration. But it's, it's all baby steps. And I've talked about that too, that it's so many baby steps. But, you know, I, I get the idea that you can't take big steps till you take small steps, but we seem to be stuck in a loop of small steps. And for every baby step that we take, it seems like we are taking um, adult steps backwards. And so 
Um, these are all the things that I think that people can do who are interested in improving a broken system. Um, I think also communicating more with inmates. Uh, I think that volunteering once the craziness of the pandemic is gone uh, to teach classes, to, uh, to try to maneuver a path of empowerment for individuals, whether it's through literary programs or prison newspapers mm -hmm. or um, legal education or education opportunities uh, or trades, um, anything to help individuals who are stuck in this broken incarceration system to be better equipped um, to be able to have these, these plans that will hasten their release from these horrible places. Ultimately, I think the goal is to eliminate as much of the prison system as possible. Um, and people say, well, what are you supposed to do with X? What are we supposed to do with Y? And my answer to that is work on the front end, man. You know, right. work on the economy. It's really easy. There's so many studies that are out there as to what the systemic causes of criminal behavior are. And we do not put any money towards those things compared to the inordinate amount of money that we we spend on the prison system. Right. And it, to me, it would be a cost savings, but we aren't having those conversations. And those are the conversations that need to happen. Um, speaking, obviously, I completely 100% agree with you about tackling this, um, the root cause of why people are incarcerated. But I'm interested um, in your suggesting, because I, I love volunteering. Everybody that listens to the podcast, we're big on volunteering. Do you know if there, and I'm like the idea of um, classes, right? Like vocational training, et cetera. I think like that's not a conversation that we often have in Las Vegas. Are you aware of any nonprofit or an organization um, that deals with that? Because we talk so much about the fear of recidivism, right? Um, but are we really doing anything to tackle that? Yeah, so there are organizations that do it. Um, some are religious-based, so that's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, but there are, I know, a lot of literary programs. Um, oftentimes, there are a lot of factors, and again, this is transparency, uh, that discontinue some of these programs for different reasons, um, usually tied to resource, or at least that's what's you know said. Um, there's also lots of opportunity for... Um, uh, counseling and therapy from outside sources that could happen on a volunteer basis as well. But again, everything's at the whim of the prison. Uh, and so they could uh, stop a consistent program uh, if there's something in it that they don't like, if they thought that there was too much empowerment happening. I mean, I've always felt that those communities that have prison newspapers or prison podcasts or, you know, things of that nature, uh, make for a better prison system, but you can imagine that departments of correction like especially in Nevada right now would be very very against prisoners being able to discuss their human experience in a way that is heard by others and that's unfortunate, but uh, the the good news is that um, there are organizations and I'll send you a link that you could put up on your website yeah. uh, that once the pandemic has passed uh, are involved in education and uh, other opportunities for participation uh, with the population of individuals who are incarcerated. There's all sorts of other programs. There's dog training programs that they're involved with as well um, mm -hmm. that has some really interesting and great results. In other words, they take a bunch of uh, uh, abandoned animals and then they uh, have a program where the 
you know, the animals can be tended to and cared for and trained by inmates. And then there's a bonding that's going on. There's a pro program with wild horses. I think yes, that, yes, yes, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. So there, there have been a number of programs over the years. I've actually participated in um, poetry workshops as a volunteer uh, in the past, but the, the problem is the inconsistency. Um, not only with, you know, because you'll have a good volunteer and that volunteer leaves or the program is defunded or they, they say that there's not enough resource in the prison. So the room's not available and, you know, or there's, there's a situation. Um, but I know a lot of, of um, like-minded people who have done programs in the prison. So uh, I will try to assemble what's there. Of course, everything's on hold right now. So now is not the opportunity to do it, but maybe um when when things calm down a little bit but we are really you know and, and not to be the harbinger of, of doom but everyone is is concerned that it's not an if but a when um there is a, a serious outbreak in one or or more of the institutions that they they supervise right now and and that brings me to the last point where um just up in one of the conservation camps recently oh no it's not conservation camps it was one of the uh one of the facilities um there was a, a vendor who had tested positive. And so that vendor was exposed to 48 individuals. So they tested all 48 individuals. Again, they're doing way more testing with non-symptomatic um, exposed people than mm -hmm. they are with people who we think are presenting with symptoms. Right. Um, they, they did finally, after some pressure, and again, this is where pressure helps. There was some pressure from some outside groups to um, waive the copay because people don't realize that when you're in prison, you have to pay to go see medical. Mm -hmm. um, and Nevada has the unfortunate distinction of having the highest copay in the country. Right. For uh, inmates, it's $8 a visit. Now, $8 doesn't sound a lot to us, but if you think about it, that they on average earn uh, about 20 cents an hour and mm -hmm only get to work maybe 20 hours a week uh, right. tops, uh, $8 could be two months salary uh, in there. And so um, a lot of places don't have a copay. It doesn't really pay for a whole lot, but it is a, uh, a barrier to seeking medical. In fact, the Department of Prisons once said, um, we have it in place so people take responsibility for medical care. They don't think it's just something that they should you know, be able to randomly uh, access. Right. Oh, they God. should have to think twice about it. So we've made a barrier. I mean, that's the logic. Mm -hmm. um, so theoretically, they've waived the copay for anyone who exhibits COVID, etc. But they won't release the statistics of how many times they've waived it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the <laughs> symptoms of COVID are, you know, stuff that you would commonly see anyway, maybe not in the same, you know, in the same um, uh, combinations, right. but high fever or a dry cough or respiratory stuff. I mean, that is reported all the time in prison. I mean, that is very, very, very common. I would say that a high percentage because of the closed quarters, et cetera, exhibit these symptoms all the time. Now, mm -hmm. are they or are they not COVID? Who knows? And I think that the prison, unfortunately, again, because of lack of transparency, is not revealing that they are like being liberal mm -hmm. or being really conservative in even waiving the copay for people who are exhibiting some symptoms. 
Um, they have recently cited security concerns for releasing any information about how many inmates are showing signs or even what facilities people are being tested at. It's, it's really a shell game and trying to pin them down on vital information is just such an arduous task that I think just by attrition, they're hoping that people forget about it. You know, now that we're transitioning into talking about the economy, I, I think that on some level, they think that they've ducked this, um, this unfortunate bullet. Right. Um, that's, you know, the fact of the matter is that something just happened in the last week that caused them to inordinately test pretty much double the number of people that they've tested so far, which is right. still under a hundred, which is still less than 1%. Right. Um, and we're all waiting the results of that. And, you know, even if some positives come back, they're going to go, oh, well, that was just limited to that one of the 20 institutions. And so we don't still need to worry about it. This is going to be a stall out until the very end. And it doesn't look like the governor is going to use the pardons board, um, which is the one tool he does have to um, thin the vulnerable populations out, even people who would otherwise be suitable candidates for release into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Wow. Because I think if he does it for one person, he thinks that everyone's going to think that he needs to do it for everybody. And he just, that's not on, on his, on his priority list. Right. Well, David, it, this, the this, this has been talk about the homeless. Yeah. I'm so sorry. No, ramble, ramble. we, uh, Allison and I decided we want to have you back for that. So that's a, that's okay. a, I think this, this conversation is, is so important. Um, They're faring better during the pandemic. I will say well, that's that, good. <laughs> uh, especially since the county, especially since the largest population of individuals who are homeless uh, really is impacted in Clark County and mm-hmm. Clark County social services and Clark County is being very mindful and thoughtful about it. And even city of Las Vegas is starting to kind of come around with this, that during the time of pandemic, uh, individuals have a lot more options than even um, before. And so uh, I'm encouraged, although there are still a lot of concerns that are out there, not just for future, but for immediate times, uh, the, the vulnerable population of, of individuals who are homeless are, are sitting a lot better relative to the, the population of incarcerated people. And uh, so at least that's the one, you know, happy, and I put that in the biggest quotation marks you can yeah. get onto the podcast, uh, you know, lining here. But uh, we're really focusing on this prison population. And, yeah. you know, if prayer worked, as they say, God bless. <laughs> but um, we're not going to stop pushing the buttons and, and trying. Uh, the public record requests are being denied. We are trying to push those and we'll just see what happens. But thanks for letting me have the opportunity to talk about this very, very um, important issue of a very hidden population of Nevadans who uh, are, are really in a, in a dire place and are really, really nervous right now. Yeah. And we, we appreciate it, David. And you've been an avid um, advocate for that community, trying to restore justice and dignity to, towards a population that I think a lot of people easily forget. So thank you for being um, one of the voices, most prominent voices in Nevada. And just, if we could pivot just for a second and end on a light note, um, I want, I'd like to hear you live in the downtown area. What are you looking forward to visiting safely once the economy um, is up and booming? Well, uh, I, I made my list and uh, my uh, life partner uh, told me in no uncertain terms that I'm not allowed to go to any of those places um, for the foreseeable future. So. (laughs) 
it's almost like torture because she's so thoughtful about everything. Um, and and she, she's taking this very serious and in her line of work, she has to as well. But, um, you know, I, I just want my cup of coffee at Vesta so bad and they're offering curbside right now. And so, you know, I'm inclined, but she says, you know what you're going to do. You're going to linger and you're going to want to catch up with everyone and be That's social. True. And that is the antithesis of being a thoughtful citizen right now. And so, um, right now I'm, I'm being strongly convinced to just kind of stay within the confines of our home and, um, uh, make the best of it until the all clear is all clear. So that's, yeah. that's my number one though. I just want to hit my coffee shops. I miss that's my coffee and shops. You, and you do have a puppy to tend to. Yes. And we, we do have a source of beans. So oh, it's not like we're, yeah. we're not getting the flavor. Not caffeinated. Um, right. Yeah. We're, we're getting the flavor. We're just not getting the color. If you know, <laughs> I definitely understand that. Well, David, um, how can people find you? So if they want to follow you on Twitter or... Yeah, um... so Twitter handle is the easiest. It's at OyVegas, uh, O-Y-V-E-G-A-S, OyVegas. <laughs> and um, I actually have a, a website that's up. It's just davidfigler.com. It has a little bit of information about me and people can reach me there too. But Twitter is always the best. Yeah. That's find where, the worst. That's where you find <laughs> Let's all be of clear. us. It's both best yeah. and worst. You find all of us in our most um, best and worst vulnerable moments. Mm -hmm. in the yeah. Middle of the night, uh, insomnia, or just rage. <laughs> yeah, I'm on the rage side. I'm trying to stop. It's the coffee. <laughs> I, I hear you there. Well, David, thank you so much for for coming on. Um, and this has been Wild and Free, a Battleborn podcast. As always, this is Jacob, along with my co-wrangler, Allison. Allison, who's the rest of the team? We have our producer to thank, Jose Sotelo, research assistance by Ashley Pacheco, creative design by Berta Gutierrez. We have the dog in the den of descent, Raven, and the little bebe, Sebastian. Yeah. It's unfortunate you didn't get to see, see the dog or the baby, because they are probably the most adorable members of our team. They are. No question. <laughs> we'll see them soon, though. Yes. Anyway, thank you again to David, and this has been Wild and Free. Giddy up. Yeehaw.